You know, there's something unique about the outdoor experience. If you're the outdoors type, if you like to hike and to go on different trails, if you are into mountain biking or kayaking or something like that, you know that that unlocks a whole new world to the experience of living and breathing here on earth. And yet at the same time, the world feels limitless when you are able to see and experience the world just beyond the neighborhood that you live in. As a youth pastor, when I was a youth pastor at my previous church, I was there for uh, 30 years of my life. I was a youth pastor for seven. I was involved in that youth ministry for 15 years. And we would have these youth camps. And we'd go up to Big Bear Mountain and we would go to this Christian campsite for a weekend. We would take upwards of 350 to 400 junior high students, okay? Like, not only did the cabins stink as all heck ever does, one, because they had really bad body odor, but because all the boys, in my experience, would just spray Axe body spray everywhere. It was a great time. It was, it was great. Um, but as, as a leader myself, I would take these junior high students out after our chapels at night, and I would take them up to this rock formation that was very familiar to a lot of our leaders at that time. And we would take them over there because it was this beautiful scape where you could just look up beyond trees, beyond anything else, and you could just see literally millions of stars. And that's actually one thing that I really enjoy about Blomont, right? Because all the wind blows everything away. During the day, it's miserable. I live near a construction site, and so there's you know, all kinds of things blowing everywhere. I've got all kinds of great construction stuff in my backyard. It's wonderful. But what we experience at night is seeing the stars and how bright the moon is. And so as you're up in the mountains, you know, you're at 7,000 foot elevation, you're able to see stars beyond measure. In fact, you could see multiple shooting stars at a time. It was this beautiful picture of getting away from your um, wanted distractions, essentially, and getting into sometimes what was this unwanted reality of being outdoors, because not everyone is that outdoors type. And so if you were fortunate enough, you could see a shooting star or two, you could hear the owls in the trees above you, you could hear bats flying over your head, rustling through the night. And so we, of course, had to add a spiritual element to it, as every youth camp does, because that's what you do. And so it was to get away from these distractions and then to become enamored and curious about the world and the God above who created it. For me, it was in that moment, year after year, as a student myself, as to why I became a leader in that ministry. And so as a student, I not only became infatuated with space and nerding out on all that stuff, but I truly experienced that which was spiritual and out of this world. It's what youth ministries and youth pastors call the mountaintop experience. And part of the reason it's called that is not only because when you're on that mountaintop, you're experiencing what feels more like a genuine relationship to God because you're away from distractions, you're away from siblings, you're away from cell service, so even if you tried, you couldn't get it. And it was this mountaintop experience because as soon as the Sunday came around, all these kids are fired up, but as soon as they drive down the mountain and go back to school on Monday, it's as if they had never learned anything because some of those rituals and rhythms that they had learned so often in their life and in their everyday struggle just snapped back to reality for them. And so what I sensed as a closeness to God on the weekend evaporated as soon as I got down the mountain, sometimes even in the car with brothers and sisters and things like that. 
And so reality can rear its ugly head, and I was faced with actually applying or trying to remember all that I had learned at church camp, and that went flying out the window on the way down. And maybe you had this sort of experience, this spiritual experience of of recognizing that closeness to God, whether it was through a difficulty, and God used that as a means to bring you closer to himself, because what else did you have to cling to? Or maybe it was something that you enjoy and it's this rhythm that you have found, whether it's going on a hike or going on that daily walk with a dog or something of that nature where you just, you sense a closeness to God that you don't in other places. And what can become the reality for us is that the presence and the power of God can only be experienced when we are surrounded by other believers doing other Christian-type things, singing the Christian songs, and those things aren't bad, but we can't allow ourselves to only be surrounded by other believers so that we lose what Jesus says in verse 13, which we'll read about in a few weeks, about the saltiness that we have in the world. And so these rhythms must come into effect to not only be what, it, what we would consider a mountaintop experience, but that it would become something that becomes a, a part of our daily rhythm and routine. And so in fact, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount was what you may call a mountaintop experience, and yet it was meant to be taken down the mountain to be lived out in order so that others would see it. What's striking about Jesus being on this mountain is that many have used this parallel to see how Jesus was becoming the greater Moses. There was this stir, there was this talk of the town. John the Baptist was baptizing people with water. The Pharisees, the religious people, they were all freaking out like, hey, we gotta go and see what this guy's doing. Hundreds, if not thousands of people being baptized daily by John the Baptist. These Pharisees are freaking out because they're like, hey, that's our job. That's what we're supposed to do. But isn't that the beauty of the gospel is that it doesn't require a title to do the things that God's called us to. It's the calling of knowing that when we are equipped with the gospel, we can go and do these things. And so the Pharisees were freaking out because they were concerned that this John the Baptist guy, right, he was eating locusts and honey as his daily meal. Like you thought like paleo was a new thing. Like paleo was back there when when John the Baptist was doing this thing. And so they started to take notice And it was this stirring of the town where people are like, hey, what is this guy doing as he's baptizing? They come to John the Baptist. He's like, I'm I'm just baptizing with water. But there's someone who's about to be here whose sandals I'm not even worthy to unstrap to get him into the water. And this guy's going to come, and he's not only going to baptize with water, he's going to baptize with the Spirit. So people are starting to take notice, like, okay, something's going on. Is this potentially the long-awaited Messiah that we had been waiting? 400 years of silence where there was nothing about God. From the end of the New Testament, or the Old Testament, to the beginning of the New, there's this period of time where God is silent. He is nowhere to be found. People were wondering, like, this whole thing, was it a gimmick? Did God give up on us? But then what they experience as they come into this space of Jesus starting to teach, they said, this is the Messiah we've been waiting for. And what they thought of Jesus as Messiah was more militarily, more politically, economically. Jesus is like, this is not my kingdom. This is my kingdom that is not of this world. It's a much different thing. And so as Jesus is on this mountain, there starts to become this parallel, like this guy is becoming to look a lot like the Moses guy that we've read about generation after generation. And so as Moses, as we know, received the way for living through the Ten Commandments, those two tablets of stone, Jesus was giving the way for living. People were sitting down and gathering around him because there was something unique about what he was saying. As the connection of Jesus to Moses, who also ascended the mountain from there 
taught the people to gather, and it was this idea from there that they were taught as the people of God to gather, and it was this recognizable and easily discernible thing that Jesus is becoming this new and presented final arbiter. He's settling all debates about God's law, thereby functioning as a new and final Moses. Matthew is clearly writing within the stream of this Jewish tradition, and this comes out in these verses, with this implicit connection between Jesus and Moses. At the level of this basic narrative, you can read Jesus' ascension to a mountainside as a simple auditory thing. He's like, hey, there's a bunch of crowd. It's a lot of people. Um, I can't really project as well as I would like to. And so he uses this idea of coming up to a higher elevation on a hilly slope as the ideal way to address a larger crowd. Even in fact, if you've read in church history before of men like the Wesley brothers and a few others who had done open air preaching, no microphones, nothing of that sort. They were on horseback with thousands of people in front of them. They would find themselves wondering, how do I project louder? And they came to discover, obviously, that the higher in elevation, even though it was close in proximity, was able to project their voices that much louder. There was one time, in fact, where George Whitfield had over 5,000 people in an open field preaching to all of them with no microphone simply because he got to a higher elevation. And so Matthew, of course, he's not trying to uh, tell us through his storytelling that this is some mere geographical movement. Jesus is ascending a mountain that actually speaks of divine revelation. If you've done your study on the mountaintops of Scripture, which probably not many have, if you go through back now and look at all the different mounts in the Old Testament primarily, you'll see that this mountaintop experience was sort of a divine revelation. Some people considered it because you were higher in elevation, you were higher to stars, you were higher to the sun and the moon, that you were higher to heaven, which meant that you were in closer proximity. Obviously, that's not the case. But what we discover here, more specifically, is that Matthew picks up Jesus's moving to a mountain as he visits this place to present a revelation from God. Throughout the ancient world and even today, high places are understood as the location where gods speak and reveal things. Even when you look at the inauguration in front of the Capitol building, you see the way that all the structure is set up and it's this president who's coming into the elected office and there's thousands upon thousands of people out there, you kind of get an idea of the way the elevation kind of speaks to a sense of um, divine revelation, if you will. And so ancient Israel is no exception. These mountains played key roles and turning points in Israel's history, thereby making mountains potent theological symbols. You think of Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you hear of some songs that you are the God of the mountain and the God of the valley because the mountaintop is sort of that conquering thing that is always in my way and the only way to overcome a fear or to overcome something is to climb that mountain. That's an analogy that a lot of people use. I just, I gotta climb over this mountain of anxiety or depression or I need to climb over this mountain of something that always has a theological symbol attached to it. Different mounts in scripture like Mount Ararat, Mount Carmel, where Elijah came before the gods of Baal, Mount Gilead, Mount Moriah, Mount Pisgah, and Mount Zion. Each of these are ways in which Israel's history has become rich and has seen the movement of God before them. 
So the parallel between Jesus and Moses goes beyond to see that Moses' story is a part of something bigger in that God was rescuing and forming for himself a people through the Exodus. Because it wasn't until after the Jews had come out of Egypt that this mountaintop experience became a thing. So when Jesus goes up on the mountain to the other or to speak the Sermon on the Mount, he is speaking as the Mosaic Messiah and delivering this Messiah message. The sermon stands in the place that the law did on Mount Sinai with Moses. That's where he received the Ten Commandments, not as a mere substitute, but now as its fulfillment. What Moses received as the Ten Commandments, right? Love God, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, honor your father and mother. These commandments were essentially a foreshadowing of what Jesus was going to come and perfectly fulfill. That Jesus was going to be the God incarnate who is saying, yes, the Ten Commandments were great for then, but now here I tell you a new commandment. Love God and love other people. Those are the two greatest commandments that we've been given. So this means that Jesus is not just merely presented as another Moses, rather in line with a greater than Moses, Jesus is presented here as the Messiah who fulfills the promised purpose. And this Sermon on the Mount will cast a vision of how disciples should live. When you notice in verse 1 and 2, it says that Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and he sat down and his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. That was essentially the first layer of an audience that Jesus had. He was primarily talking to his disciples and just let everyone else hear what he had to say. And we've been in conversations like that before when you're talking one-on-one and you're talking about a situation and you know that deep down you're speaking a little bit louder for the people in the back so that they can hear what you're having to say. But enough about mountains because we're not here to talk about mountains, although those are important as you can tell. Let's look into what Jesus is getting at because at Jesus' words, we can find great significance at what Jesus is bringing to mind as the great promise of the deliverance that God had foretold. Yes, Jesus is the new Moses, but his message is appropriately seen through the vision of the prophets, especially Isaiah. In fact, in Matthew 13, later on when we get there, we will see that Matthew quotes Psalm 78, speaking of Jesus, potentially prophetic in its psalm. Psalm 78, 2 says, I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from of old. And so what Jesus is saying is not anything that would be different from what ancient Jewish people would be accustomed to. It was just essentially a different way of saying something that they had already seen. In a way, this shows both the brilliant and the beautiful markings that are called the Beatitudes because they simultaneously invite Jesus' disciples into these flourishing virtues and at the same time can comfort us with the promises of God's coming deliverance. Friends, whatever it is that is going on particularly difficult in your life right now, the Bible is very clear about the promises of God. I was recently listening to an interview with um, uh, an old Christian rapper, worship Christian something artist guy or whatever. His name's Toby Mac. Maybe you've heard of him. Um, his, son Tru- his son Truett actually 
um, passed away two or three years ago, and I had a chance to meet Truett because at my previous church we'd do you know, the Harvest Crusades and all those things, and Truett was a part of this that Toby Mac would come and do, and so I connected to Truett just on a very, very small detail. But in seeing his interview and in the way that he was progressing through his, um, his death of his son, what he was given was insight into something that was more about God's coming deliverance and his promises. And he was told by his local pastor that he's at, and his local pastor friend had told him, look at the promises of God, not what you think is a promise of God, that God will work this out and you'll feel better about yourself and you'll eventually get over it and you'll eventually feel happy. Like that's not an actual promise of God. And so what gave him that description was him actually clinging to what God actually promised for us. And we can sometimes get confused by what the promises of God are. Even some words that aren't even in scripture, like blessed are those like, who give so that they can receive more. Like There's this idea of something like that in scripture that has nothing to do with scripture because it's not found in there. And so we can't just hope that we're creating these promises of hope as if God is going to bless us with that. The only way that we can truly come to understand what the promises of Jesus are is spending time with Jesus in his word. He is setting the world to be what he intended from the beginning, which was good and right. And so this opening to Jesus, uh, to his teaching, combines the vision for true human flourishing in the context of God-centered hope. Because when Jesus speaks these words, we can see how many of the themes are highlighted in the Beatitudes because they are reiterated throughout the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. You can go home throughout this week, you can read the Beatitudes, and then you can keep reading the book of Matthew, and you can see a lot of these themes that play into that particular gospel. And that's why we're going to spend our time deciphering what Matthew is really getting at in this gospel. And so there are four themes worth noting that begin in the Beatitudes, but continue on through the rest of the gospel. They're under the umbrella of the kingdom of God, which are number one, heaven, number two, righteousness, Number three, persecution, and number four, mercy. And so in the case of the kingdom, we see that for theirs is the kingdom of heaven serves to provide for us a framework of reference for Jesus' beatitudes. This repeated reference to the kingdom invites us to recognize that what Jesus is about to teach to is tied directly to his opening words and his overall message in Matthew 4.17. If you go back one chapter, we read in Matthew 4.17, Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the, that's the very first thing that comes out of Jesus' mouth in terms of his ministry. Like, think about someone's first opening line to a book, Think about an opening line in a movie or an opening scene or something of that nature. That will create for you the rest of the trajectory as to whether or not someone finishes that book, someone watches the entirety of that movie, or they listen to the rest of that album. The first thing that people do is usually try to draw you in to grab your attention. And so the opening statement for Jesus, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, is kind of a striking blow because it's like, whoa, where, like, who are you? Where are you coming from? Who gave you the right to do this? And so even as much as Jesus' opening statement is a strong one, especially with the reality that it may come off harsh as his first words of ministry, 
What's funny is that when we look at the typical first beginnings of ministry, we first see it as a giving of a testimony. A lot of people, when you're talking about Jesus and you're talking about how you began your relationship to Christ, it begins with the testimony. That's how pastors begin their, their ministry typically, is when they're given an opportunity, when someone senses that they've They've sensed the call of this person into ministry. They're like, hey, the first thing that you can do is actually give your testimony, which has allowed others to discern, is this a calling or is this just an opportunity for someone to elevate their own platform? It's usually a story all about how life got twist and turned upside down. It was before the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And so we take a moment to look at the ministry of someone, you like that, who is radically changed by Jesus. When you think of something radically uh, stated as repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, people are like, Wait, what, what, what do you mean? What do you mean the, the kingdom of God is at hand? And that goes to show even kind of the obsession of end times things with so many believers is that we, we see these birth pains and we see all these different signs and we wonder like, is, is, this the, is this it? Like, is the end of the world coming? And I don't know if it necessarily is because we also remind ourselves, 2 Peter 3 says that God is willing that none should perish and that all should reach repentance. God will continue the longevity of his earth as long as there are still people in it to be saved. And it's from that place where we can discern that Jesus' words and his first words in ministry are very clear and very good to begin his ministry because repentance is the first place that we begin in our relationship to Christ. And so we take a moment to look at this ministry of someone who is radically changed by Jesus and isn't that exactly what Jesus describes as his first words in ministry, repent. It's this Greek word metaneo, which means the changing of one's mind with no intent on looking back. That's not an easy thing to do. When I repent or when I see something and I know that it could fulfill and I know that it could be something that I'm longing for, am I able to have enough self-will or self-power, whatever you want to call it, to not look back? In fact, that's what got Lot's wife into trouble if you remember Lot's wife. When Sodom and Gomorrah was there, God talks to Abraham and he's like, hey, I'm going to destroy this city because there's like a lot of weird, nasty, filthy things going on. And so Abraham's like, hey, time out. You know, my cousin's down there. Like, if there are 50 righteous people, can we save that city? And God's like, yeah, sure, no problem. And Abraham's like, okay, how about 20? How about 10? How about five righteous people? Not even five righteous people. You would think that the five righteous people would be Lot and his family, but Lot's wife, as they were fleeing from Sodom and Gomorrah, she looked back, and what did she turn into? A pillar of salt. It was her distraction that kept her from willing to not repent. Am I missing out on something that I've left behind? Friends, when you come into contact with Jesus and you've been truly transformed, you have no desire to look back on anything that you had done previous to meeting Jesus because when you find Jesus, you find everything. In fact, St. John Climacus says, repentance is a contract with God for a second life. Repentance is a constant distrust of bodily comfort. So many people will say, well, just, ju like, just trust your heart, trust your emotions. Like, what does that even mean? Like, my emotions are all over the place. I don't even want to start thinking about those. He continues, repentance is the daughter of hope and the renunciation of despair. Repentance is reconciliation with the Lord by the practice of good deeds contrary to the sins. Repentance is the purification of the conscience. 
Repentance is the voluntary endurance of all afflictions. And so repentance must be the first mark that brings us into an understanding of how to live out the rest of these beatitudes. And so with regard to righteousness, this theme is the overarching idea of the sermon. Two of the nine beatitudes mention righteousness. Blessed or thriving or flourishing or fulfilled are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and those persecuted because of righteousness. Another important theme that appears in the Beatitudes and then reappears throughout the gospel is that of persecution. Overall, the subject of suffering for the sake of Jesus and his righteousness proves to be the main emphasis, feel, and the flavor of the Beatitudes because this structure places great stress and waiting on the theme of persecution by meeting it at the repeated climactic note meaning that persecution is so important because it requires patience and it requires suffering, not for your own sake, but for the sake of Christ. And so these Beatitudes paint a picture of an unanticipated flourishing. It's a flourishing or it's a blessedness. It's a happiness in the midst of suffering and persecution. And that's ultimately the question that all people have. Well, if I meet Jesus, do I meet the end of my suffering? In fact, no, you might even meet more of it. Throughout the rest of Matthew, Jesus anticipates that his disciples will experience persecution precisely because they are following him and his way of righteousness. Even more so, his life and death will be marked by persecution. And when you look at Jesus and the way in which he was persecuted, in the way in which he was ridiculed and blamed for so many things, what we also discover that even though there was not a disciple to be found at the cross, except for John, the rest of the disciples took note of the persecution that Jesus had gone through and the crucifixion that he went through, and because they were persecuted for their faith in Christ and not in themselves, they all died a martyr's death. It was following the way of Jesus. And so when you talk about following the way of Jesus, are we willing at some point to give our lives for the sake of Christ? And then finally, the fourth topic raised in the Beatitudes, which proves to be of great importance, is that of mercy. Mercy that is manifested by the state of the heart that makes peace, shows compassion, and forgives other people. It's been said before that mercy is about an action that is a generous action that delivers someone from need or bondage. As Matthew 5, 7 says in the Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. And so we know what it is like to receive said mercy. We know what it is like to receive said grace because we've received it from Christ. That's ultimately where the mercy and grace begins But so often in our fleshly nature, we are not so as easy to give grace and mercy as we are to receive it because we want to receive it. We want that mercy when we show up late to work. We want that mercy when we don't meet expectations. We want mercy for that situation. But as soon as someone else is in need of it, we're reluctant to give it away. This mercy could be known as a deliverance from the bondage of guilt or deliverance in a sense of healing and giving. And so this comes out in the Beatitudes about showing mercy and making peace. 
and on a side note, which we'll look in a few weeks at, blessed are the peacemakers, not the peacekeepers. Peacekeepers and peacemakers are different. We talked about that a few months back about the difference because a peacekeeper is someone who doesn't want to ruffle any feathers. A peacemaker is like, bro, you suck, you suck. Let's get together and let's talk about this, okay? That's what a peacemaker is, and that's not an easy thing to do because when we examine Matthew more broadly, he shows us that this in many ways embodies Jesus' way of righteousness, especially as it fulfills the second greatest commandment, which is love for others. For example, the great weight placed on showing compassion to others is highlighted twice in Matthew's gospel when he uses Hosea 6, 6, which says, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Even more frequently, Jesus speaks of the necessity and the beauty of forgiving other people who have sinned against us. Additionally, disciples are exhorted to help those in need and an exhortation connected to mercy in terms of the word for giving alms to the poor. You've heard of mercy ministries. That's a way of reaching out, of giving back to others, and that is a way in which you can be the hands and feet of Jesus. And so this first beatitude tells us, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or another way to say it is, in order to experience human flourishing, you must be poor in spirit, which is the way to heaven. Jesus says these words that this blessing is simply fellowship with God. It is the experience of his covenant promise. To be poor in spirit does not necessarily mean that you are poor, that you have no money, and that you give it all away. Jesus never intended for that to take place except for which the rich young ruler was identified in his riches. But Jesus saying blessed are the poor in spirit has nothing to do with financial means. It is the experience of his promise, which is, I will be your God and you will be my people. And we read that in the book of Revelation because it reminds us of the promise of what we have when we meet Jesus face to face, when we are in his presence, when we get to heaven, when heaven and earth collide and become the lasting place for God and all his people because there will be no more crying there will be no more tears. There will be no more suffering or sorrow. These things will pass away. And God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. But this isn't being a poor in spirit that you can look forward to, hopefully, so that you do get into heaven. It is experiencing the kingdom of heaven now. We've shared before, especially because our church is called Garden City, it's the fulfillment of knowing that God intended in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, to establish perfect harmony with his creation. And then, of course, we know two chapters later that Adam and Eve screwed that up for everyone. We really appreciate that as our first father and mother, and they go and screw things up, and that's okay because Jesus comes on into the world as the fulfillment of the kingdom already here. And so when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, he is saying the kingdom of heaven is not something you're looking forward to. The kingdom of heaven is here because the king of heaven has already arrived. Jesus, being the king, is the one who is here and is giving us an opportunity to experience his kingdom now. And so Jesus' words were not this expression of this on-the-spot inspiration. People didn't have their phones out waiting to tweet if Jesus was going to say something really good and just send it off to the rest of the metaverse. He wasn't flashy and revealing these sudden revelations. He was simply doing the work of the Father. 
Often, in fact, when you look at Jesus' teaching, he, it took the form of exposition and application and a clarification of Scripture. He would say often, you've heard it said before, because those stupid Pharisees were saying that, but I tell you this, and then he would go and change the narrative. Jesus was pointing out what God's word tells us is the blessed life or how to experience human flourishing. The new element was not that he spoke the Beatitudes, it was that he spoke against a background in which God's word had become clouded at that time. People had lost sight of where true blessing and human flourishing were to be found. And so remember that Jesus' first layer of audience were his disciples. And in Jesus saying to the Christian, you need to hear my voice again. This is ultimately for the believer to hear this today. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we often think that those are the things that the people need to hear. And yet Jesus is saying to the Christian, you need to reorient your life back to the reality of who I am and not what you wish or hope to be outside of me. And that, that statement can readily, readily be put to the test. The question is, what is our heart set on as vital for our life and our character? What do I see as the vitality of my life? If I don't have that said thing, is my life going to be okay? What happens when that thing goes? What happens when that thing is gone? What happens when that person's gone? What happens when that situation doesn't go the way you expected it? Is that vital for you to live a human, flourished life? And so that's how you put it to the test. Am I willing to be poor in spirit, which means am I willing to give my needs over to God as the arbiter of my life rather than deciding for myself what I think is right and wrong? Another question we can ask ourselves is what things do we most want to see developed in my life? I've had the opportunity to um, become what we are called as a pilot church for something that um, I've gotten to know a pastor in uh, the Portland area over the years, and he is starting this new uh, nonprofit organization called Practicing the Way. And so as Garden City Church for us, it is a way of being able to formulate a discipleship network within our church. It's launching later this year in the summer going through some of the programmatic things to decide how to do discipleship correctly in our church. And so Garden City is one of the pilot churches. We're going to be one of the first churches to do this in light of trying to figure out what does it mean to be a disciple or an apprentice or someone who practices following Jesus. You can use all these different kinds of words. And so as a pilot church, what we get to discover is what do we desire as a disciple of Jesus in the context of our local church and does that line up with scripture? Because I think there is more to be said about discipleship than just necessarily meeting in a small group, but maybe sharing a meal together, inviting people over for dinner. And the whole context of that comes out of the reality that sometimes our fences are higher than our tables are longer. And so we need to have longer tables in our home than our fences are high even though it's good to have a high fence, especially when your kids are running at it full force and almost shattering it, it's great with the vinyl fence on our new house. It's fun. It's great. Kids are already destroying our place, so you can pray for us. But the whole point of that is asking those difficult questions. When you sit down, is this vital for my life and do I necessarily need this? Another thing that I was able to be a part of recently was also this way of trying to build what we've called so often a rhythm of life. 
What rhythms are we including in our personal relationship to Jesus that are allowing us the space and the room to invite others in, but to have an honest, open relationship with Christ? Because there are things that we will not allow others to see who we are or what we've done. And so this, it's, you know, you, you, it's kind of like a plug and play type thing. If you want it, I can send it to you. It builds you a PDF of some of the things that you need to do on the practical and applicational side of your relationship to Jesus. Because what can so often happen is that when we, when we enjoy doctrine and we enjoy reading scripture and those things, we find ourselves buried in a book waiting to debate another Christian on their view of said theological position. What good is it going to do if we're arguing with each other now? We're going to spend the rest of eternity arguing it then. And so the point is to discover different areas of your life that need work. And so some of the things for me that this thing helped me discover, kind of like a spiritual test, if you will, um, was my need for quiet time. I'm not good at being quiet, apparently. I'm not good at, and quiet time can be devotion time or whatever you want to call it. Um, and then this thing also said, you lack a prayer life. And I'm like, how dare you? Like, I'm a pastor. Like, you can't talk to me like that. And of course, like, I went to my wife. And I'm like, hey, like, what do you think about this? She's like, oh, yeah, for sure. And I'm like, oh, okay, then. Um, that PDF actually works. So these are practical ways that it is inviting you into understanding day to day how you can create a rhythm for your life. And so this list of vital things that we're talking about, does this list include me being poor of spirit? Does it include me being meek? Does it include having a hunger and a thirst for righteousness? Does it include me being merciful, having purity of heart, being a peacemaking person, and a willingness to be persecuted for the sake of Jesus? Or do we think that the real blessing is really to be found somewhere else? And so when Jesus talks about us being poor in spirit, he is not saying that I must not have financial means to live this life, nor to live in a depressive condition like boo-hoo, poor is me, my name is Eeyore, and I'm just bummed out all the time. In fact, some Christians have given away all their possessions on the basis of this beatitude alone, and yet a man can still possess nothing and still lack this spirit. Neither is poverty of spirit a bad self-image in which low self-esteem comes into play. Some have taken that to be the reason why they've given things away. Again, a man can be marked by all of these things and all these characteristics and yet know nothing of what Jesus meant. So Jesus is describing here the person who sees their spiritual bondage, is conscious of the death of their sins, and knows that in himself he is deprived before God the poor or the needy, and it's the captive who seek God as their only refuge and salvation. No one can be a Christian without this spirit. Everyone who is a Christian has this spirit. It is the spirit of what we have seen in the prodigal son. He left his father proudly, self-assured that in his share of the inheritance that he would go away living a full and complete happy life. But very quickly when he became bankrupt, Luke 15, 17 says he came to his senses. He came to his reality of poor in spirit. It was in humility of spirit, emptied of all of his pride, that he came home to his father empty-handed, no longer full of himself, but looking only for whatever his father might be pleased to give him. He even was willing to take a job as an employee under his father, 
rather than being his son because he felt the weight of his guilt and his shame. And yet when we come to the Father and we come to him with that emptiness of our pride and in the humility of of the Spirit, Jesus says, I have everything you need. Welcome into the kingdom of God. In fact, in the book of Romans, Paul hands out how this new spirit, this poor in spirit can be born. We discovered that instead of being self-sufficient and acceptable before God, we are by nature rebels against him. We've broken his commandments. All that we've done on the assumption that it will earn favor with him simply disqualifies us from his presence because we are guilty all the way. Sinclair Ferguson says, we who have boasted of our sufficiency or our achievements, we have thanked God that we are not like other sinners. We will have absolutely nothing to say to the judge. We will stand before him ashamed, silent, and utterly lost. And so when God leads us to see that this is our real condition before him, and when we can recognize this to be true, then poverty of spirit is born in our hearts. It feels as if we are urged today to develop almost every other kind of spirit except a poverty of spirit. But the lack of this spirit can lead to a spiritual ruling. As Jesus warned the church, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. That is the rich in spirit, not the poor in spirit, who says, I am self-sufficient to meet my needs for the day. I am not in need of Christ. There is much teaching on how to be filled with the spirit, but where can we learn what it means to be spiritually emptied? Emptied of self-confidence, emptied of self-importance, and emptied of self-righteousness. What the Beatitudes mean for us, and what this means for anyone who practices following Jesus, is that it must be that practicing following Jesus. It's not having to discover any further than what it says about being poor in spirit other than to live by a poor in spirit, which means that you are living by willing to allow Christ to be your sufficiency. I can't simply be concerned so much with doctrine that it keeps me locked up in a room with my head down in a book for hours on end simply just to debate or argue with another believer whose view of God's word is different than mine. It's not enough for me to just look at all this knowledge and all this doctrine and say to the other believer, well, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, because what was Jesus' mission? It wasn't to give us a formula of how to debate or argue or so much theological as much as it was knowing that there were sheep without a shepherd. And through his compassion, he saw them in the distance and he said that I have come to heal the sick. And then other people are like, well, why did you come to heal a sick? And Jesus is like, well, what if I healed those who are already healed? Like, actually, like, Jesus is here to give medicine to those who are sick, and you try to give medicine to someone who's not, it can actually do more harm than it can good. And so what that does for us is it recognizes that Jesus' mission as disciple-making as he was, was to create in himself what we've been saying over the last few weeks and months, is that in order to practice following Jesus, the thing that we do is that we imitate him. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And that was essentially Paul's way of telling other people around him in his community, in his neighboring areas of influence, come watch my life and what I do 
because I'm imitating Christ. That's a huge order, and I have not yet said that to anyone because I'm not ready for that. I'm still trying to figure out what it means to imitate Christ myself. But what that does then also, too, when we enter this otherness and into this sacred relationship with Christ and call other people to that, what we are doing is we're also carrying on the ministry of Christ. Whatever we put our hands to, it is the ministry of Christ that we are putting our hands to. And then third, it's the fact that you're going to become like him in the process. Because anything you spend most time around, you're going to end up talking like that person looking like that person, speaking like that person, whatever the case may be, whatever you're spending your time around, you're eventually going to look like it. And so the more we can spend time with Jesus, the more we will look like him in the process. Maybe not the beard and hair necessarily, but the characteristics of what it means to practice following Jesus and trusting that the Spirit of God is directing our life. And as the Spirit directs us into this moment, as we partake of communion, it brings us to a place of understanding that I cannot simply require of myself a sufficiency to meet my own needs, but that I must trust in Christ to do that for me. And so in this moment, if you would give that to the Lord and say, Lord, I am no longer self-sufficient in meeting my own needs, but I am willing to give this to you you will experience what the Bible says is being poor in spirit and experiencing what it means to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray together.